Morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Phil. I'm one of the assistant pastors here. Um, let me pray for us as we dig into this part of Exodus. Heavenly Father, please would you give us um, attentive ears, understanding hearts, to see in, in all of the repetition and all of the dizzying detail, Lord, of, of, of this part of Exodus, just how beautiful and glorious your character is and your love for your people is. Help us to see the beauty of Christ. And we ask it for his name's sake. Amen. How do you think God sees you? When God looks at you, how do you think he sees you? If you're anything like me, possibly quite a lot of the time, you might feel like he looks on you as something of a disappointment. If you know how holy his character is, if you know his commands, and you realize how often you'd be disappointed in me. Maybe I am a bit like the Airbnb flat that I stayed in in Scotland a couple of weeks ago, which looks quite nice in the photos online. But when we got there, it was really quite shabby and run down. It was a disappointment. And maybe I am like that to God. And if you would call yourself a Christian, how do you think he feels about the prospect of living in you by his spirit? If we see ourselves primarily as disappointments, I'm guessing we think God's going to feel quite begrudging about that. A bit like a, a little kid who's just have had a fight with their, with their younger brother, but then been told they have to share their sweets with him. That's the last thing they want to do. Maybe you feel God doesn't really want to live with you. And if you felt either of those two things at any point, then do keep listening. Because Exodus chapters 35 to 40 teach us wonderful things about the character of God. About the way that he lives with his people. And the way he sees his people now in his church. And these are things that should warm our hearts. So the primary application this morning is not going to be to go away and do something. The primary application will simply be to marvel at what God is like and what he has done for us. And if you've never felt like a disappointment to God, keep listening anyway. I suspect that if you are honest with yourself about your own failings, a time will come when you do feel like that. And then it'll be good if you can think back to Exodus and to what we're going to see about God's character today. So the chapter 40, which we heard read, is the climax of Exodus. But to understand why, to see its significance, we need to remember and understand what God has been doing up until this point. So I'm going to start with a quick recap Many of us have been away on and off during the past few weeks. Some, some are new here, so I hope this will be helpful. 
And firstly, in Exodus, we see God rescuing Israel from quite awful physical slavery, even genocide, in Egypt, and bringing them to himself through a series of miraculous events. He brings them to himself at Mount Sinai, and he makes a covenant with them. That is formalizing his relationship with them, rather like a husband and wife are joined together in marriage. And then we get chapter after chapter of instructions about a tent and an altar and a priesthood, which can seem a bit bewildering or bizarre to us. Why does God do all this? And the reason is summed up for us in chapter 29 in verses 45 to 46. I'll read a bit of those now. God says, then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. So God wanted to live among his people. He wanted them to know him, to know him as he truly is, the only true God, the Lord or Yahweh, as his name is in Hebrew, which means I am who I am. And he wanted them to enjoy relationship with him and to find rest in his presence. He wanted to show them that he was their God and that they were his treasured possession. He loved them. And as we've seen all along in Exodus, he also wanted to begin a work of new creation in them. He wanted to start reversing all the horrible effects of human rebellion and unbelief and wickedness in our fallen world. And especially the way that our sin creates separation between God and humanity. Eventually, he was planning to bless people from every single nation upon earth through Israel, bringing them back into relationship with him. That is why God rescued Israel. And Exodus 40 is the climax of that initial stage of his plan, because this is where God arrives. This tabernacle, this special tent that Israel has made for God's presence, there's a diagram of it um, on your uh, order of service. It was completed. And what happens? Exodus 40 verse 34 says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God has arrived in great splendor. He's no longer on Mount Sinai where the people can't approach. He is in the middle of the camp among his people. Isn't that an incredible privilege for any nation that God should live among them in such a way? But none of this could be taken for granted. Two weeks ago, we saw Israel break God's covenant in a tragic way when they made a golden statue of a calf as a representation of him and then performed a pagan style worship ceremony around it, which ended in sexual immorality. They broke three of the Ten Commandments and they basically committed spiritual adultery against their divine husband. It was the most 
shameful and dishonorable way they could have treated God after all the kindness he had shown them in rescuing them. So God was right when he threatened to wash his hands of them and start again through Moses. So the fact that in chapter 40, God comes and really does live among his people is astounding. Israel did not deserve that in any way. So now I want to draw out three things from chapter 35 to 40 that show us what had changed. Firstly, we see that God fully forgives. In fact, he seems so willing to forgive, it's almost as if he has forgotten their sin. He almost acts as if nothing had happened. We see this at the start of chapter 35. At this point, Moses repeats God's commands about the Sabbath, the weekly day of rest. And that's important, at least in one respect, because the Sabbath was the last thing that God spoke about when he was giving Moses instructions for the tabernacle up on Mount Sinai. So the last thing God spoke about just before Israel made this golden calf and everything got messed up. So when Moses starts talking about the Sabbath again in chapter 35 as the beginning of his address to the people about building the tabernacle, he's picking up exactly where God had left off, almost as if the events in between hadn't happened. It's as if Israel never broke the covenant. So fully has God forgiven them. Secondly, what has changed is that the people have responded with willing, grateful, and even perfect obedience. Now, you, you may remember if you're here in chapter 33, the Israelites who survived God's judgment after the golden calf really mourned their sin, and they showed it by taking off all their ornaments. And now they show the earnestness of their repentance again by perfectly obeying God's commands for building the tabernacle. So in, in chapter 35, in verses 20 to 29, men and women, high-born, low-born, willingly give all the gold and silver and precious materials required to build the tabernacle. And in chapter 36, verse 5, we see that they're bringing more than enough. Their hearts have moved them to to respond to the Lord in thankful giving. And then from chapter 36, verse 8, we see God's instructions for building the tabernacle from earlier in Exodus are repeated almost word for word. It shows just how carefully and exactly the craftsmen and women were keeping, following his instructions. That's why there is so much repetition. And in fact, from chapter 39, uh, verses 1 to 31, we get the phrase, as the Lord commanded Moses, seven times. And the same happens in chapter 40. We get this summary sentence in verse 16, Moses set up everything as the Lord commanded. And then seven more times in verses 17 to 32, it says, as the Lord commanded him. It's really stressing how completely Moses and the Israelites followed God's instructions. 
And that is a big change of heart from chapter 32, where they essentially set off on worshipping God in their own way, totally disregarding God's way. And the result of their obedience is a work of new creation. That's what these two groups of seven, as the Lord commanded, they're meant to do. They echo the seven days of creation in Genesis 1. And so does the language about completion at the end of chapter, uh, so yeah, in chapter 39 and 40. So to give you an example, if you look at chapter 39, uh, verses 42 to 43, it says, the Israelites had done all the work just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Moses inspected the work. That is just as God sees and inspects his creative work in Genesis 1 verse 31. Moses inspected the work and saw they had done it just as the Lord commanded. And we can infer from that that the work was good, exactly as creation was good when God finished it, because the tabernacle conformed exactly to God's word, just like creation did. And so what does Moses do? He blesses them. Just as God blessed Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 verse 28, and then blessed the Sabbath day on Genesis, in Genesis 2 verse 3. So that there are all these parallels. And we are meant to see that the tabernacle is a work of new creation, where heaven meets earth, and where God is reunited with human beings. He is living among them. And it comes about through his full forgiveness and Israel's response of grateful obedience that's the second thing thirdly and finally having forgiven them and seen this obedience god can't wait to live among his people he seems really eager to do so and we see that in chapter 40 in verse 34 israel has spent months building this tabernacle but the cloud seems to come down and God's glory seems to fill it almost as soon as they finish putting it together. God's presence fills the tabernacle even before Moses has anointed it and consecrated it. If you look at um, chapter 40 and scan down verses 9 to 15, you'll see that God commands Moses to anoint the tabernacle, to, to dress the priests in their clothes, to anoint them. But then if you scan through verses 16 to 33, can you see any mention of Moses anointing the tabernacle or dressing the priests? It doesn't happen, not until a few chapters later in Leviticus 8, by which time God has already entered the tabernacle. And it's almost as if he is impatient, impatient to live among his people. So completely has he forgiven them. So delighted is he in their obedience, and so determined is he to complete his work of new creation. And I just, I want to pause there, just to ask, don't we have an amazing God? That he would forgive Israel's gross idolatry so completely. Isn't that amazing? And don't we have a wonderful God that he is so eager to restore creation and to live among people? 
And don't we have an extraordinarily generous God that he blesses his people's obedience so richly, accepting their workmanship, filling it with his glory, when all along it was underpinned by his grace, his provision, his enabling. We should be amazed at our God simply for these things. But these things also prepare us to understand an even more amazing work of new creation. Because there were times in Israel's history, as many of you will know, where they continued in faithful obedience. And that was great. And that is instructive for us. Their example is commendable. But increasingly, as the years went on, sadly, they turned back more and more often to the same kind of idolatry that they committed at Mount Sinai with the golden calf and, and worse. And in response, God eventually removed his presence from among them. He desecrated his dwelling place. The tabernacle was lost and the temple which had replaced it was destroyed. It was as if God had overthrown his work of new creation. Yet he was still willing to forgive Israel's sins again. And he hadn't finished with his work of new creation. We see that when we get to the New Testament, perhaps particularly in John chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 14, we read that the word, that is the eternal word of God, the second person of the Trinity, his son, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. God came and tabernacled among us, so to speak. As his eternal son added human flesh to his nature and walked this earth. And in John chapter 2, in verse 19, standing in the rebuilt temple, Jesus says, he declares, destroy this temple. And I will raise it again in three days. And in verse 21, John tells us Jesus was not referring to the physical stone building of the temple, but his body. And the implication is very clear. Jesus's human body has become the new tabernacle or temple where God dwells most perfectly among his people in creation. And Jesus mirrors Israel in the way he prepares this tabernacle, his body. He perfectly obeys God's covenant law, fulfilling it down to the smallest dot. He obeys it through suffering and temptation, becoming obedient even to death on a cross. And so he becomes the perfect savior for us, and the perfect dwelling place for God. Israel's obedience produced something beautiful. With all the gold, the silver, the precious stones, the exquisitely colored fabrics and the beautiful embroidery that went into the tabernacle, all of it perfectly arranged as an earthly representation of God's heavenly dwelling. So how much more 
did Jesus's perfect obedience make his body a beautiful dwelling place for God? Stunning in its holiness, its humility, in his righteousness and justice, in his love, his mercy, his compassion. Jesus's body, his earthly life was beautiful. And as he perfectly obeyed his father, he became a second Adam, succeeding where the first Adam failed in his obedience. And so he became the beginning in earnest of God's new creation with no going back this time. So all of us who follow Jesus today have an incredible privilege, even greater than ancient Israel. And that was a pretty big privilege. Through faith, we are united to Jesus like a bride to her husband so that what is his has become ours. Through faith, God is pleased to cleanse us from all sin by his blood shed in our place. And through faith, God is pleased to credit Jesus's beautiful, perfect righteousness and obedience to us. We are clothed in it, so to speak, so that we have become beautiful and holy, even perfect in God's sight, because we are united to his perfect son. Jesus has made us like the tabernacle, like himself, in fact. And as a result, God's presence lives in us even more wonderfully than it did in the tabernacle by his spirit. We are new creations too, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So the presence of God, which Israel was blessed to experience in a glorious way, but a limited way for a limited time. That is something that all believers, Jew or Gentile, now get to experience in full and forever. The original tabernacle was wonderful, but Jesus is something even better. And we are joined to him by faith, made new creations. So by way of application, I simply want to ask, is that how you see yourself? If you are a follower of Jesus, do you see yourself like this, as something more beautiful in God's sight than the tabernacle with all its gold and precious materials? And do you realize how delighted God is to live in you? He was eager to live with ancient Israel because he had fully forgiven them and was pleased by their commendable but temporary obedience. How much more willing must he be to dwell with us when he has forgiven us so completely in Christ and when we have been made so beautiful in his sight? 
And if we have become God's dwelling place on the basis of Jesus's obedience, not our own, how secure is our position? Even though the daily reality of our obedience falls far short of Jesus's perfection, his obedience will never fail. It will always be enough as he intercedes for us at the Father's right hand, pleading his obedience on our behalf. So God will not abandon us. He will not overthrow his work of new creation in us. He will continue it and make us more and more like Christ until the day he completes that work, when Jesus comes again, when he raises us gloriously free from sin forevermore so that we can rest in his presence. If you trust in Jesus for your salvation today, do you realize that you have such great reason for hope and for confidence? This is how God sees you. And if you, if you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus, wouldn't you love God to embrace you in this way? Wouldn't you love God to see you as something so beautiful and perfect in Christ that he is eager to live with you, live in you? Wouldn't you love to have that kind of intimacy with God and that assurance of his love? It's simply a matter of giving up your own attempts to earn his approval, of surrendering your life to Jesus. Because there is nothing we could do to earn what Jesus offers us. We can only accept it as a gift. If that's you, do talk to me or Pat after the service. We'd love to chat about how this works further with you. Otherwise, let's take a moment in quiet and then I'll lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, many of us struggle to believe that you could see us in this way that you could love us like you love your son. Please would you work the assurance of that deep into our hearts. Lord, we see it so clearly in your words. May we be fully convinced of it in our hearts too. And Lord, in that secure position, would, you, would it be our joy to respond in thankful obedience to you, giving our lives day by day in service of Jesus. But please would you help us never, never to think that it, it becomes our obedience that earns your, your approval, your love. Help us always to know that it is Jesus's perfect obedience 
that secures our hope, that makes us beautiful in your sight. And Lord, we praise you for it. Amen.